We're going to be in Joshua chapter 10 tonight, and 11, and 12. We're going to see how it goes, so we're we're going to try to. And uh, don't be intimidated, We're uh, we're going to walk through Joshua 10, we're going to sprint through Joshua 11, and we're going to blink through Joshua 12, so... So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but tonight I am seeking to, to build on the foundation that we, we established last night in Joshua, or last week in Joshua 9. We're, we're going to try to build on top of that application um, to make something that I think is even more glorious and more grand of an application. Um, so... So, if you remember last week's, that'll help you. If you don't, I'll, I'll just provide you a little aid. Last week, we, we learned about Joshua and the people of Israel, and, uh, and how they failed with the Gibeonites. Remember, they had been given uh, means of discernment, means of wisdom, and they failed to use those means. And then they had, they had been fooled by the Gibeonites. But the, the essential message, and this is what we're going to be building on tonight, the essential message of last week's uh, sermon was uh, God's people are, re- uh, are called to respond to failure with faithfulness. God's people are called to respond to even their failures, their moments of failures or foolishness. Or they're, they're called to respond to, to difficult or twisted situations that are marred by the sin of this world. They're called to respond with faithfulness, even in hard situations that are of their own making. And they're called to respond this way because they have a vision and a sense of the name of their God that is on them in all they do. That is why they respond in the way that they do. They respond with faithfulness because of the name of their God. We do not want to shame the name of our God. And I would say tonight's application is even more glorious, but it builds on that as well. I I would say it is meant to encourage your faithfulness. I would say it is meant to assure you in that faithfulness. In that faithfulness of of responding faithfully to hard situations. This, This passage, this message is meant to give you assurance and encouragement and even strength for following through on that faithfulness. But I'm not going to tell you uh, what that is. I'm not going to tell you what the application is that we're building. Rather, I'm going to try to to build up this building that we're building and let you guys try to guess at what the application is. So so as, as we're walking through this passage, as we're seeking to build on the foundation of last week, and, and as we're working towards the big application that comes to us, Throughout all of Joshua 9, 10, 11, and 12, I want you to try to figure out what the application is going to be before I get there. But don't worry, I'll tell you what it is in the end. But I want you to try to guess. So, are we ready to build? Are we ready to to see God's glory? Are we ready to strengthen our faith even in hard situations? Uh, Let's dig in. Remember, once again, the book of Joshua is meant to communicate theological truth. It is history with a sledgehammer. It's meant to corner you by God's faithfulness. God is faithful to every inch of his promises. That is what Joshua is meant to, to, to tell us. And, and, it's, and it's telling you that. It's cornering you. It's backing you into a corner to try to convince you that you must also be faithful as well to your God, right? 
He is a God with such amazing divine love, such amazing divine faithfulness. It demands all of me, every inch of me, my life, my soul, my all. That is the book of Joshua. And, and we're, we're still recalling the problem of Joshua 9. Israel is called to respond faithfully to their failure, but there is a question that I think is kind of loitering in the back of their minds as they enter into Joshua 10, and the question is this, okay, we're going to respond faithfully to our twisted, difficult situation that's brought on by our own sin, by our own foolishness, but who is God going to be in this situation? Uh, What will God do as we seek to, you know, fail faithfully? Is he going to be on our side? Is he going to be uh, with us, but from a distance? Is he going to be scowling at us over in, in the corner? Can we be assured of his presence? Or is he going to be continually angry at us for failing, right? And maybe perhaps this is a question that you might ask too, when you face a similar situation where you have to respond to a situation in which you have sinned in a faithful way. Maybe it's, it's confessing your sin to your parents. Maybe it's, it's owning your side of the blame. But you have to respond faithfully. But the question is, hey, when, when I confess my sin, when I can expose my sin before God, when I respond well, when I respond faithfully, who is God in that situation? When I don't just live for my name, but I live for his name. When I say to myself, his name is on me, therefore I'm going to respond faithfully. How will God be towards us in that situation? Let's read um, Joshua 10. We'll read the first five verses. Now it happened that when Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured I and devoted it to destruction... Just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to I and its king. And that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land. Now they feared exceedingly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than I, and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhai, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up. They with all their armies and encamped by Gibeon and fought against it. Here we have, here we have the king of Jerusalem, um, Adonai Zedek, which literally means my Lord is righteous or my Lord is just. Um, very similar to another king's name, who was also a king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek, the, the Lord is righteous. The, those kings in Jerusalem had names like that, even in the Canaanite days. Um, this man was confident initially at the beginning of Joshua 9, you remember, maybe they sensed a weakness in Israel because of what happened at Ai, and they had gathered together, and maybe there was a, there was a whole uh, um, 
um, group of um, little city states gathering together in Joshua nine. They were they were seeking to be to to mount together a coalition that they could destroy Israel with, and then that got disrupted a little bit with Gibeon. Matter of fact, notice the king of Jerusalem was confident, and now he is full of fear again. Why? Because Gibeon had made peace with Jerusalem, and they were a great city. And, and notice the author makes no small comment about how great Gibeon was. This was not another just fortress. This was a major royal city in that time. And, of course, as a result, all of these kings gather together, and Gibeon begins to feel the heat, as you can only as you can only imagine, and they call on the covenant that they have established with the people of Israel. They call on Joshua. Remember, this is probably a, a vassal sovereign co- covenant where, where basically they're saying, hey, we'll promise to be your people if you protect us. And so here they're, they're calling on that covenant and saying, here is now a time for you to protect us and come to our aid. And and we see the gamble that Gibeon uh, did take in all of this in making peace with the sons of Israel. They instantly made enemies of all of their neighbors. And they knew this would happen, and they were counting on the faithfulness of Israel to their covenant to survive this initial onslaught. But read verse 6. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your slaves. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. And notice the situation here and notice the temptation if you're Israel, I would say. I mean, there, there is a slight temptation here. You've got to think in the back of Israel's mind, hey, this was kind of a bad covenant to make. It was a covenant with the people of the land. We're kind of having to eat it now that we've made this covenant. But look at this. The problem is solved. What does Israel have to do to get rid of their problem, to live consequence-free in the land? All they have to do is be a little slow to save the Gibeonites. The, the, the Amorites, all the kings in southern Canaan are already at Gibeon surrounding it, ready to destroy it. All Israel has to do is just be a little slow, be a little sloppy, and they can actually remove the problem that they have created for themselves. There's got to be a temptation in the back of their head. Maybe this is the Lord's will of getting rid of this problem. But look at how God's people instead choose to act. Verse 7. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. Notice they go up quickly. They go up without hesitating. Uh, This type of response, by the way, requires that you have uh, a predetermination to do it, right? They had already determined we are going to fulfill the covenant obligations that we have made with these people. Why? Not just because we've made it, but because when we made it, the name of our Lord was on the line. Once again, looking back to chapter 9, verse 19, right? We have sworn to them by Yahweh. And God's name matters to us. And we are choosing to faithfully fulfill our obligation as if Yahweh is doing it himself. Remember, we talked about this last week, right? When when Israel goes forth, they have this sense about them. Our God is being communicated through what we do. 
And therefore, we want to be faithful, even in our, even in our, in our foolish covenant that we shouldn't have made. We are still going to be faithful because the name of our God is on the line. And look, look both at the, the encouragement that they receive and the energy that they pursue in pursuing this faithfulness in their failure. First off, notice the encouragement. Verse nine, the Lord, or verse eight, the Lord speaks to Joshua after they move. Do not fear them, it says, for I have given them into your hand. Not one of them shall stand before you. They do not blink in faithfulness to, um, to prove the faithfulness of their God. But, but notice also, God does not blink in his faithfulness to them as well. His faithfulness to fulfill his promise. There is a very huge sense here that God is near. And they can count on him. Uh, but no, don't, don't just notice the faithfulness here, the, the, the encouragement. Notice also their energy as well as they pursue faithfulness under their failure. Verse 8 says their energy that they used. Uh, ver, uh, verse 9, rather. So Joshua came up, came upon them suddenly. He had gone up. He was marching all night from Gilgal. He had to move fast to be faithful. Once again, uh, Gibeon could be overrun in, in a matter of moments, and so Israel had to move quickly. Matter of fact, they had to do an all-night march. They had to depart suddenly, and they had to hike laboriously to get there as well. And perhaps it would be helpful here to just give you a little bit of a reminder as to what the geography looked like in this area. Remember, um, from Gilgal to Gibeon was approximately about 18 to 20 miles. You could do it in a night if you were, if you were making good pace. But I looked it up and approximately from here, um, 21 miles away is the town of Shafter. So it'd be like me saying, hey, look, next eight hours of your life. Just grab everything you've got. We're going to go for a hike up to Shafter. You can go either way. You can go up 99 and turn up there at Laredo, whatever you want. But it takes about it takes about 21 miles or about eight hours, 10 hours. This would be an all-night march, and they'd have to book it. But then you've got to add in the elevation rise, and then this becomes really significant. Not only are they losing sleep, not only are they traveling for eight hours straight, but they also have to consider the elevation rise as well. This was no easy hike. This was about 3,500 feet of rise in elevation. And if you want a kind of an illustration of what that looks like, it would be essentially like you're hiking the distance of from here to Shafter, but if Shafter is as high as Sierra Christian Service Camp is. So you're hiking up, and Sierra Christian Service Camp is 50 miles away, so it's a lot closer, so it's a little bit steeper, and the train is a little bit treacherous. You are hiking that overnight in darkness, racing to fight a battle. And you just took off without very little preparation. Oh, what is this saying? This is not when I feel like it kind of faithfulness on the part of Israel. This is determination. This is a willingness to sweat. Why? All for the name and fame of their God. Because God's name matters to them and covenants in his name matter to them as well. Uh, They are willing to, to, to experience pain, sweat, danger, and they are determined to do it all because of Yahweh's name. It, it, it doesn't always mean you're going to feel like it. It doesn't mean it's always going to be fun, but that's what 
doing things for the name of Yahweh is like. Where do they get this energy? Obviously, they get this energy from the sense that Yahweh's name is more significant than our feelings or our name, but also they get this sense from the very real presence of God that is promised with them. We have to do this. God is with them. But notice even more, notice the power and the presence of Yahweh backing up his word here as well. Let's read chapter um, 10, verse 10. And Yahweh threw them, that's the Amorites, into confusion before Israel, and he struck them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. Now it happened as they fled from before Israel while they were on the descent of Beth Horon that Yahweh threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstorm than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Then, or you could say, at this time, Joshua spoke to Yahweh in the day when Yahweh gave over the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeah, and O moon, in the valley of uh, Ijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stood in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there was uh, no day like that before it or after it when Yahweh listened to the voice of a man. For Yahweh fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp to Gilgal. Notice, notice the, the, the power and the presence of Yahweh backing up his word. First off, check out, check out to, uh, to, to borrow the, the words of a certain genie that you all know. Notice the phenomenal cosmic power that's on display here in this passage. Matter of fact, is verse 13 really saying what it looks like verse 13 is saying? What is it saying? It seems to suggest that the earth stopped turning and that the whole entire solar system just froze in place and extended the day out. How in the world, how in the world does that deal with lots of issues like gravity, ocean, current, tide? What's going on for all of that to happen? As a matter of fact, many people, many conservative scholars try to figure out what exactly happened that caused all of this to happen. And some of them give all sorts of suggestions. Some people say this is just kind of a, a poetic expression. You've got this quote from the book of Jasher, which may be a poetic book, and maybe that's what this language is. It's just trying to express like, man, the day really fell long. Uh, some people say, Maybe, maybe the men were energized by the Lord to do the work of two days. So it felt longer. Some of you feel that way when you're doing your chores or your homework. This day feels like it's going forever. Did the sun, uh, is the sun stuck or something? Uh, some people suggest it was some sort of refraction where the light kind of is, is bouncing in a certain way and it extends the light of the day. Uh, some people maybe suggest in a similar way that it, maybe it's something like what happens in Alaska every single summer where the, the days are just continual because the light is continual. Maybe something like that is happening. And a very popular conservative opinion is that actually maybe this is not sun, but it's actually darkness. 
And they get that from saying, well, he's, he's speaking to the, the son, be still, which could also be uh, interpreted be dumb or be silent or not work. And so therefore the, the sun is dark. So really what Joshua is praying for here is for darkness to be extended. And he's offering this prayer in the, in the early morning. Matter of fact, the time when the moon would be over the place that he stated, which is Ajalon, that is about West Israel right now, and then Gibeon, and then the sun over Gibeon, that would be approximately about 10 in the morning when he is arriving quickly um, through his surprise attack. And some people say maybe he's asking for an extension of darkness or coolness. And therefore, you know, the, the army doesn't get so hot and sweaty chasing this enemy. But there's one big problem with that view. And actually, that view is held by my favorite commentary. And he even says himself the big problem with that view. And the big problem with that view is verse 13, which really seems to suggest that the sun did not move in the sky. So what's the solution? What exactly was happening? You could probably take one of those views, but I'd say the best solution you could make is just to do an if-then statement. If the God who made the world, if the God who made the world by the word, if the God who made the world by the word also sustains the word, the world with his words, and if that God is all-powerful and in control, he can probably figure out all that gravity issue. I don't know. That makes sense to me. It's not hard for me to believe. But why? Why would God do this? Why is it so important to show such phenomenal cosmic power here in this moment? Well, first off, he is, he is doing this to give time to fully display and, and dole out his judgment on those people that have rejected him. He is making time so that Israel can fully pursue the enemy all the way down into southern Judah where Makata is. But also, he is making this display, I think, to reveal his power to his own people. This is the power that is available to you at your fingertips. Doesn't mean God will always do it this way, but this is the power available to you in your God. He can make the universe stand still in a moment. And he can access such powerful resources to do what? To be faithful to you as you're being faithful to him. This is the divine power able to sustain and to accomplish all of our needs as we seek to be faithful even in our failure. And not for our name's sake, but for his name's sake. Lord, I'm going to be faithful in this situation for your name's sake. The resources of heaven are these, and they are available if needed. Oh, it's, it is power, it is resource, able to stop the earth from spinning. And that is crazy to me. Uh, do, do you have problems in your life? You have resources in the power and the strength of God to walk faithfully for the sake of his name. This is your God. Notice the first, the, the phenomenal cosmic power, but, but also don't miss the very personal uh, nature, the very personal nature of God's presence in all of this. The very personal nature of God's presence. Some translations uh, perhaps yours, I don't know, soften um, a 10 and 11 a little bit. 
and they make it kind of sound like Israel was doing a few of these things. God, you know, caused the confusion, then Israel did the mop up. But but I think it's it's better to actually suggest that Yahweh was doing every one of these verbs in chapter 10. Notice, what does he say? Uh, chapter 10, verse 10. Yahweh threw them into confusion before Israel. He, LSB has a capital H, he struck them with a great slaughter. He pursued them. He struck them. Verse 11, Yahweh threw down large stones from heaven. Who's pursuing? Who's striking? It appears in context to just hold the same subject to be Yahweh himself that is personally involved in this judgment. And just, just, just check out, check out the divine warrior of Israel in action here. Notice his, his style of warfare. It's a, it's a pervasive warfare. He wages war on all fronts, including the very minds and hearts and wills and, and feelings of people. They're in confusion. Notice it's a personal warfare. He himself is doing it. He is pursuing. He is striking. Notice it's a pursuing warfare. He is, he is bent to follow his enemies and, and dish out his judgment until it is complete. Matter of fact, when you're following this route, uh, commentators say, uh, as you are about to follow after the descent on Beth Horon, the route turns from going west into the ocean to going, to going south. And right there, you stop going upwards and you start going downwards. And from Joshua's position, they may have been able to see these, these soldiers running away downhill and seeing hailstones fall on them for miles and miles and miles ahead. Yahweh pursuing his enemies. Matter of fact, notice what it says. Yahweh is the one who killed more people than even Israel did. But notice it's precision warfare as well. Yahweh seems to be aiming at every single soldier. Why? Because the, 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 great, the great death count that he rack up, racks up, but also notice, no Israelites probably died in this. Yahweh is aiming for his enemies. The very nature of his warfare is very personally present. And this is a terrifying display of God, if you ask me. This is a terrifying display of God's wrath for those who harden their hearts against him. Not only is his aim perfect... But he also, he also, he also always accomplishes all of his will and all of his judgment against them. You cannot run. You cannot hide from this Yahweh God. He extends daylight to get his enemies even. Not only is he holy, you could say, but he is fully able to judge people according to his holiness. And that is a troubling thought. That is a troubling thought. So what are the, the, what's the application super skyscraper structure that we're trying to build? Let me just, let me just say it this way. Uh, when your calling is to respond obediently and faithfully in your own failure for the sake of the Lord's name, when, when you sense that is your calling in life, even in a twisted, difficult situation of your own making, when that's your calling to respond that way, you can be assured in your effort to be faithful that God cares more about His name than even you do. 
and he will bring it to pass. He will give you grace and strength to faithfully obey him, even in your twisted situation. Notice God doesn't say to Israel, that doesn't count. You don't have to worry about that covenant. No, he says, I am going to display the greatness of my power through your faithful response to this dark and difficult situation. And that's going to be how I display my power. And as you seek to live faithfully for his name, be assured that God cares more about his name than even you do. Now, I'm not saying that that God will remove all the consequences of your life from your life. I also want to be careful. I'm not saying that there there is no sweat and energy that will be required of you. Obviously, there's a lot of sweat. Uh, 300 and uh, 3,500 feet of sweat, in fact, for Israel. But rather what I'm saying is you can be assured, you can be encouraged that as you seek to faithfully respond in your failure, his presence and his power will be there to sustain you for the sake of his name as well. And that is a glorious, assuring, and confident thing for the people of God in hard situations, right? Even in their sin, He sustains them, not for their name, but for his. Remember, 2 Corinthians, this is a a different situation, but 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul is, is talking about a thorn in the flesh that was most likely not something physical in his body, but more like a adversary in the Corinthian church, somebody that was causing trouble and all sorts of grief. It was painful. It even says, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8, that he pleaded with the Lord three times to remove it. Notice, Christ doesn't remove the problem, but what does he do instead? Verse 9 of chapter 12, he says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Then Paul responds, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may be displayed in me. What does God say? What does God say when we find ourselves in circumstances, maybe of our own making or of consequence of this twisted world that we live in and we're seeking to live faithfully for his name? He doesn't always say, hey, I'm going to remove the problem for you. But he does say, I will give you more grace instead. Grace to obey, grace to endure, and grace to live faithfully for me and my name. And why does God do this? Why does Christ do this? Why doesn't Christ remove your problems? It seems to be, according to 2 Corinthians 12, that he is saying, because I like you better with your problems. Because I like you better when you are weakened by your sin and more dependent on me. My power is displayed, in fact, when you are weak. To sum up, When you make faithfulness, despite your failure, a priority in your response to life's difficulties, you can count on God's grace to sustain you because of his name. And uh, may I try your patience with one more application, one more little skyscraper. It's just nothing. It's just another skyscraper application that you just need to see in this big, huge passage that we find ourselves in as we are building on Joshua 9. 
N- number two, the, the second thing you need to take away from this is, is, is maybe just this. Look at what such a faithful response produces. Look, look at the consequences of a faithful response to a twisted situation for the sake of God's name. Now, I want to be careful here. I am not saying just go out there and sin for God's glory. I, I am not saying, you know, sin more that grace may abound. I, I am not saying that you will always get a result to this extent, but I'm just giving you this as an illustration of the good things that God can mean through seemingly bad things of life. God doesn't use perfect people to bring about all of his promises. He uses, by and large, imperfect people who are willing to do one thing, respond faithfully to their situations for the sake of his name. And he does amazing things through these people. Just look at the response, the outcome that comes from their response. The, the whole conquest opportunity of all of Canaan, south and north, hinge off of Joshua 9. It, it all comes from this. God produces the entire conquest out of Israel's faithful response. So here's where we are, we are flying through Joshua 10. Are you ready? Joshua 10 is the conquest of the southern kingdom. We've already been in half of Joshua 10, but you'll notice there, Joshua 10, 16, kind of returns to walk through in detail about how this conquest looked. It kind of already summarized it for you uh, there in chapter 15, Israel returning to Gilgal, because in chapter 40, or in verse 43, it repeats that same line, which seems to suggest that everything in between now and there is kind of like a summary of what this all look like. After Yahweh finishes off the main force with hail, we see Israel chases the enemies all the way to this city in the southern, in the south of Judah called Makeda. Makeda. Uh, first, first they chase all of the army and they knock out the the larger force, and they lock up the kings in a cave while they try to take out all of the armies while the rest of the armies are hiding in their fortified cities, verse 12, or 20 tells us. And then after killing these kings, hanging them on stakes till evening in verse 26, they kill every inhabitant of the city there in Makeda. And then you see, beginning in verse 29, that they go on this systematic city-by-city city, um, kind of conquest. They don't burn down cities, but they simply uh, destroy all of the citizenry that are uh, rebelling against Yahweh. And notice, it's all summed up there in verse 40. Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the Shephelah, and the slopes, as well as all their kings. He left no survivor remaining, but he devoted to destruction all who breathed, just as Yahweh, the God of Israel, had commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, that's the very south, even as far as Giza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all the kings and their land at one time, because Yahweh, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. 
And then so Joshua and all Israel then returned to Gilgal. This is the southern conquest. And this actually opens up the opportunity of the northern conquest. After they return to Gilgal, we learn that the kings in the north are trembling because of Israel. And they form a coalition to try to stop Israel. And Israel uses this opportunity to stomp on them as well. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now it happened when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of it, that he sent to Job. Bab, king of Madon, and, and the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and the kings who were of the north in the hill country, and in the Erba, south of Chinnereth, and in the Shephelah, and all the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanite on the east, on the west, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Persite, and the Jebusite, and in the hill country, and the Hivite at the foot of Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. Then they came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that was on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all these kings agreed to meet, and they came and encamped together at the waters of Moron to fight with Israel. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, because because of them for tomorrow at this time I will give all of them over slain before Israel and you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire first off Israel comes on these northern Canaanites suddenly just like they did in chapter 10 and then Yahweh gives them complete victory to the point where they actually burn all their chariots and and permanently disable their horses by hamstringing them and, and notice the result is all of these nations split up and run for their lives and Israel is able to take them all out. Verse 11 and 12 summarize, and they struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, that is Hazor, uh, devoting them to destruction. There was no one left who breathed and he burned Hazor with fire. Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings and he struck them with the edge of the sword and he devoted them to destruction just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded. And, and finally, notice, uh, the, the author almost kind of makes a joke of it. He almost doesn't even talk about it. But the author just kind of skips over some massive battles. And it's interesting to me because he spends so long on a dinky little town like I and so, so long on a small little fortification like Jericho. You'd expect him to take chapters on Hazor, which is a major northern complex. It's got a massive wall, multiple gates. But no, all he mentions is that they burned Hazor with fire. And then, if you've got an eye for the Bible, you'll notice at the very end of this chapter, in, in verses 21, Joshua and Israel take out the Anakim, the sons of Anak, who caused all of, that, all of those problems with the first generation of Israelites. They were too afraid to go into the promised land because the sons of Anak were there, and they were giants. But the author just skims over them as if they're no big deal. It's almost as if he's saying... Faithfulness isn't a problem for your God. Don't let faithfulness be a problem for you either. And, it, and if you need an index of God's faithfulness, that's what chapter 12 is. Just an index of victories. An index of the faithfulness of our God. Now, we have zoomed through three chapters. Flew through chapter 12. You didn't even know I was in it. Let me, let me just try to land the plane here in, 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 a, in a few minutes, just maybe one or two. You can't just slam the brakes on a plane when you're flying that high. 
Uh, first off, we've, we've talked a lot in these chapters about the faithfulness of our God, haven't we? We've talked, talked a lot, and this is tremendous good news for God's people. Even in their failure, this is tremendous good news. God is more committed to his name than I am. And when I live for his name, I have great assurance in his strength and in his resources and his grace. But let's not kid ourselves. These chapters are not good news to everyone, right? If you are not in Christ this evening, these chapters are incredible bad news to you, aren't they? Because they show you of the great warring character and nature of the God who is determined to bring every bit of unrighteousness into judgment. These are great warnings. These are great warnings concerning a God who will judge sinners. God is a personal, pursuing, uh, precise, and pervasive judge in his judgment. And if you think this scene is horrifying, it is even more horrifying in the eternal judgment of God. Don't mess around with this God. That is the application. This is bad news to people who are comfortable in their sin because you do not want to mess around with this God too long. God is a God in whom no sinner can escape. Matter of fact, be warned. God is a God who sometimes hardens sinners in their rebellion so that they cannot escape his judgment. Check out the reason why all of this happened, why all of these cities were destroyed, why no one was spared except for Gibeon and, I, or Gibeon and Rahab, why no one was spared at all. What is the reason? Chapter 11, verse 19 tells you, there was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel, except, except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was... Of Yahweh to strengthen their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might devote them to destruction, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. That's the reason why this happened because their hearts were hard against God, because God was dealing out judgment. But in in the smoke of this judgment, and in the smoke of every judgment, there is a remnant that shows forth God's grace. And that's what we see here. We see God's saving grace on display, incredible display, to any sinner that hears of his name and comes to him for mercy and grace and does not harden their heart. We see that even in this passage. Notice uh, the passage in chapter 11, verse 19 and 20. It tells you why people did not come to Yahweh in order to showcase his judgment. But why did Gibeon come to Yahweh? It must have been to showcase his grace. Even though they came to Yahweh in a sneaky way, it was all a mark of God's grace to pour out his grace on them and make them his servants in his temple forever because they were chosen for no good reason of them, but every good reason in God. We see that on display even here. And God's grace can be yours as well. God's grace is personal. It's pervasive. It's 
powerful, it's enduring, it's eternal in hell. But this weekend, we are celebrating the fact that all of that righteous wrath of God was poured out on one man so that you could go free. That's the good news of the gospel. God completely removes your sin because in pouring his wrath on Christ and not on you, he finishes his wrath towards you in Christ. But only if you are someone that humbles your heart to the coming judge and entreats him, goes to him, so that he can become your present Savior. That is the God that is on display. A God of judgment, but also a God of incredible, incredible grace. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for um, this passage of scripture and the, and the hope that it gives to sinners the hope that it gives to weak Christians that want to live for your name, but also the hope that it gives to sinners who have yet to call on your name. And I pray through it that it even would call sinners to you tonight. And for the rest, I pray that we would be more faithful, convinced by your grace that is sufficient for every situation, even the hard situation. I pray that we'd be faithful for the glory and fame of your name. Amen.